HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Listening to Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio. I'm your producer and new host, Coral Lee. Today we're continuing the conversation on visual consumption. Joining me today is Brooklyn food artist Jen Monroe of Bad Taste. Jen's work continually pokes at her relationship to food, at times encouraging full indulgence and immersion, and other times complete and utter aversion. She's hosted a series of 10 course monochromatic dinners dreamt up a dystopian seaweed-heavy menu responding to climate change, and is easily the resident expert on all things cotton candy. This is all to say she's certainly wrestling with what is and what isn't meant to be eaten. Welcome, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. So first things first, why Bad Taste? Yeah, um, Bad Taste was originally meant to be a publication when I was in school um, and was, was sort of just starting to dip my toe into more um, theoretical thought about the world around me. I, I really was kind of seeing a an absence in the food writing and, and the food writing world. Um, I didn't really see a lot of food publications that were really kind of tapping at what makes our relationship with food kind of bizarre and interesting and, and squishy and difficult to pin down. Um, that was right around the time that Lucky Peach came out, and um, and that, for me, felt like kind of a pioneering publication in the way that um, the mainstream is approaching food and food media. And since then, um, luckily, the, the, the landscape has changed a lot in terms of how and, and what we talk about when we talk about food. But at the time, I, um, I really wanted to kind of, you know, get some of these nascent ideas that I was having out there, and I, I really wanted Bad Taste to be the food publication. Um, I very quickly understood that making a publication is very hard and very expensive, <laughs> and people don't want to write for free, bizarrely. Um, and so the idea kind of got scrapped. Um, the dinners started happening kind of shortly after, and at the time I didn't really think they were going to turn into like a, a thing, quote unquote. They were just something that my sister and I were doing um, out of our apartment, like for fun, for friends, and we weren't charging admission or anything like that. Um, 
but after a while, it, as it, it did sort of start to snowball into more and more of a thing, then, then Bad Taste felt like a, a pretty natural name for it. Um, because I did want it to have a sense of humor and I did want it to sort of poke fun at, you know, ideas about taste and class and, and fancy restaurant culture and to sort of try to, to subvert those things and, and to turn them inside out a little bit. Right. So what inspired those monochromatic meals? Yeah. Um, so there is a there's a book um, called Averbour, which is French for sort of against nature. Um, and it uh, it's written by an author whose name I'm going to totally butcher the pronunciation of J.K. Hoisman, I, I believe is sort of how it's pronounced. Um, and it's an, a pretty old book. It's about a kind of aging, very, very wealthy, uh, eccentric aristocrat. It's kind of one of the like decadent aesthetic novels in the, the same ballpark as Oscar Wilde. Um, and the the main character, who's effectively the only character, um, is is sort of aging, and he decides he wants to to hole himself up in his fabulous mansion and not really talk to anyone for the rest of his life, and, and spend all of his money on these ridiculous, lavish aesthetic ex- experiments. And one of them is that he has an all black um, funeral banquet for his libido as he um, as he sees it disappearing. Um, and that my, my sister and I both read the book independently of one another, and that sequence always really stuck with us. That the the all black food. Um, sounded really, really striking and beautiful. And so we kind of said, oh, like, let's have our own. And then from there, it was like, let's do other colors too. And, um, and, and it sort of spiraled from there. What were the unique challenges of cooking with just one color? Because, you know, there's the fear of anything being one note. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, in a lot of ways, it makes it easier to cook with only one color because your options are extremely limited um so it's it's a lot different than trying to plan another menu where you can do anything you so the the process is you you make a list of all of the foods in the color that you're after and then you sort of stare at the list for a little while and then um from there dishes sort of start to kind of just combine themselves before your eyes sort of the natural food pairings just kind of show up um but yeah what's challenging about that is 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 limitation it's the same thing that makes it easy in a way um you know, you'll you'll be tasting something, and you'll you know if you're if you're for example cooking all black food, you're like I really want some like fat in this thing. I want like some dairy, and you're like oh like how do I how do I do that? And so then you you know you kind of try to approach it backwards. So maybe instead of using dairy, you're going to be using like century egg for some fat that's going to be like a darker color or, or something like that. Um, or like you could try making like a squid ink butter or something like that. But it's it's never it's never really a straight line from A to B the way it is with normal cooking, where you're like acid, lemon, like fat, salt, whatever. It's it's you have to kind of come at things in a funny backwards way and then ingredient sourcing is often a nightmare I'm not fully legitimized enough to be working with like um, you know big large scale ingredient sourcers or anything like that because I'm never really buying in huge quantities which is sort of a problem about being a being a small fish in a big pond I guess um, so yeah it's a, it's a lot of like harrowed last minute scurrying all over Chinatown like trying to track things down in a panic which is something that you've actually helped me with before <laughs> so you know you know what that's all about yeah, and how does eating one color affect taste, or at least our expectation of taste? Yeah, I've never actually sat through an entire monochromatic dinner, which is very sad for me, so I don't I don't totally know the answer to that question. Um, but my hope is that it acts as a kind of um, sensory disorientation in a way, that, that when you're approaching something so visually, you kind of project your expectations about what a color tastes like onto something, and then when... Um, when you actually experience real taste, which is diverse, it's not, you know, a one-note monochromatic flavor, as it were, it, it, um, it's a little bit startling, it's a little bit alienating, or at least that's my hope, um, that it, it sort of, um, yeah, reacquaints you with senses in a different way. 
And so one of the meals that you served was a white meal. Mm-hmm. And one of the white meal courses was served on a white iPhone, which was, of course, beautiful and really striking, like you just said, Thank but you. also kind of undeniably sinister, metacritic, yeah. uh, metacritical. And so can you talk more about the process of that course? Sure. Yeah, that was that was an idea that I had had kind of kicking around for a really long time. Um, it, it kind of came from a couple different directions. The first one was just thinking about um, in, in fine dining culture, how there's an impulse to just sort of make food plated as lavishly and, and often as expensively or impractically as possible while, you know, still kind of getting away with it as normal or, or sort of normalized. So like, you know, edible gold leaf is a really obvious example of that. But then there's also, I mean, this is a theme that has launched a million angry tumblers, but like serving food on non-food things. So like this is we're serving this off of like you know it starts with a cheese slate and then you end up as like we're serving food off of basketball shoes and <laughs> and like I don't even know like metal work and it's, it's just like it gets um, it gets really crazy so I wanted to think about that and, and if you think about you know what the most expensive thing is in terms of square inches that you could serve food on it's it's, it's like electronics and it's also like you know if you are wealthy enough that you can be I used to work at a salt store um where we had these uh, Himalayan pink salt blocks that people could eat food off of. And it was, it was, everything was obscenely expensive. It was in the West village. And, um, you know, I'm selling people things that I can't really afford. And I definitely drank the Kool-Aid in a lot of ways thinking about like, well, one day I'll be like a fancy West (laughs) village lady. And I'm going to have like a sushi party where all the food gets served off of pink salt blocks. And like every block costs $200 and then I'll have made it, you know, and that's totally not real. Like that's not a real dream (laughs) that's a terrible dream um but thinking about like taking that to its sort of next level is like what if you have a dinner party where everyone's eating food off of iphones so the iphones were fake um they were movie props but they felt very real um and so yeah trying to to sort of subvert that and then of course when you send out food that looks crazy all people want to do is bust out their phones and take pictures of it so it it sort of turns into like a weird plate and mirror situation that was my hope anyway Mm -hmm. yeah there's this picture online of this kind of iPhone within an iPhone within an iPhone, mm-hmm. which I thought was really funny. My dreams look like that. <laughs> so you also did a pink meal, and two weeks ago we spoke with Pietro of the famed millennial pink cafe, yeah. Pietro Nolita. And while it's easy to be jaded or cynical of the influencers sharing these pink photos, there's also some kind of deeper truth that's revealed in connecting fashion and color and food. Mm-hmm. And why do you think we have this need to show those around us that we're tastemakers, or at the very least in tune with what the tastemakers like? Yeah. I mean, I think that phenomenon in itself is not a new one at all. We just have a new method of making it more more constant and more um, more visible, more more. I mean, directly signifying. I guess it's like when you look at someone's Instagram, you can very quickly sort of parse out what kind of person they want you to think they are, um, and and you can sort of choose or not to believe that. But you usually do believe it. And um, yeah, I think I think taste making is just a, a sort of new more financially driven word for for something that's existed a long time. I mean, if we think about food, like gourmet and gourmand culture have been around for a couple centuries. And, um, you know, we look at, you know, I I love to think about like flipping through gourmet magazine in the 90s and and what food photography looked like then. And it was it was definitely selling a different lifestyle, but it was still selling a lifestyle. Um, And we're doing the same thing now. I think the color pink is particularly interesting as we're as we're thinking about Instagram culture and um, things like millennial pink and, um, you know, the idea that you can eat. And I, I think it's fascinating what Pietro Nolito is doing is that, you know, the idea that you can kind of eat in a restaurant and, um, and be in an environment where you're, you're kind of consuming like the design experience that you want to project about yourself, right? Like, don't we all fantasize about living in a p- all pink house? I mean, I do. Um, and you know, things, environments that are meticulously decorated, if we're quite literally eating in them and taking pictures of them, then that's 
kind of what we're broadcasting is our own home on the internet in a way that I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And there's this there's this kind of new democratization of taste, like with Yelp mm-hmm. and how anyone can become a food critic. But also it seems like small businesses are easily wrecked by these bad reviews that are written on a whim, like, oh, I got a bad Diet Coke or yeah. my service <laughs> was bad that mean? one day. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> and why do you think we have this kind of fear of stumbling into a cafe that's not so highly rated or not so reviewed yeah and yeah that we just have to rely so much on others well it goes both ways there's the like one angry person can ruin a whole cafe and then on the other hand if you're you know for example a restaurant that's mostly doing delivery on seamless as your as your means of making money then you're probably going to pay for some bots to churn out a couple hundred mm-hmm. or thousand fake reviews you know you'll you'll look at this like there's a new indian restaurant that's only been around for six months and they have fifteen thousand reviews and you're like you know those aren't real but they're all glowing so like mm-hmm. i guess i'll eat here i don't know it's 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 very bizarre when when you know the idea of the review the authenticity and the the sort of human belief sort of starts to mean less I saw a video the other day about a guy who um, set up a fake restaurant in his, well he lived in a shed basically in someone's backyard in in the UK and um, he set up a a fake, I mean a restaurant that literally did not exist and um, started basically bribing his friends to write fake reviews on TripAdvisor um, and within a couple weeks became the number one rated restaurant in all of London but no one had ever eaten there. Like That's it was crazy. just this big thing. So then he was like, okay, I have to actually have a dinner there. And, um, but he had no money. So he kind of fed everyone microwaved dinners basically, but did it in a sort of outside, like edgy, unique feeling environment. And, um, and people literally ate it up. They were like, this is so special and what a meaningful experience. And in a lot of ways, it probably was a really special, you know, they were like in some guy's backyard and there's like, he's like, you know, handing you a, like his moldy old blanket because it's cold outside and there's like chickens running by. Like that seems pretty cool. But yeah, um, that is a long winded way of saying that, that, when we rely so heavily on the word, the word starts to mean even less and less. And I think for people who are genuinely concerned about going to a restaurant that isn't highly reviewed on Yelp, that, you know, that reflects on you. You know, if you bring a date somewhere and it's not actually a cool restaurant, then you have bad taste. You have poor judgment. You don't know what's cool. Um, And, you know, where you've wasted your your Instagram window for the evening and, um, or you've reflected poorly on, on yourself and your own judgments. I'm going to kind of circle back and go back to this um, climate change dinner party that you hosted. Can you talk a bit about that and what that even means? Yeah, totally. Um, well, you were you were there, luckily, so you got to, <laughs> For you got to eat it with us. Yeah, Coral um, was at the dinner. Um, the dinner kind of came to be when um, there's an author that I, I met on Instagram named Alexandra Kleeman. Um, she somewhat recently wrote a book called You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine, and um, a lot of her literary work sort of focuses on on the body and especially on on women and and what culture kind of does to the way women relate to to food and to to their bodies and to sexuality and um, and some of those kind of darker undertones I think a lot of overlap with with what my food work is concerned with and so I was kind of instantly a big fan of hers and she was asked to collaborate on an event with um, a production group called The Bellwether, and what they do is effectively like combine artists to present things in, in interesting and sort of interdisciplinary ways a lot of the time. Um, and so she said, well, what I want to do is that I've been writing these um, kind of short sort of mood pieces about um, you know, a future kind of dystopic ocean world in which many of the, the fish and the aquatic species that we take for granted now are, are gone, you know, that we're, we're looking at an empty ocean and you know, a world in which, which babies are born without ever having been able to, like, you know, go out on a kayak and, like, engage with animals in the ocean. Um, so writing about that, she says, I want to do a dinner um, that that kind of approaches 
those food ideas more directly and, and pair it with some of these text pieces that I've been working on. So I was super psyched, obviously. Um, and I had never really done anything quite so politically oriented. I mean, there's, there's definitely a political undertone to, to some of the color pieces, for example, but um, this one was a lot more explicit, explicitly having a social cause. Um, and it was really cool. There, it was um, the idea effectively was that some of the courses were trying to embrace food ingredients that um, scientists predict will still be somewhat readily available in 30 years. The idea was that the meal was set 30 years in the future, which is predicted to be kind of a um, like an environmental turning point in terms of species availability and um, and the way food chains build on one another. Um, so 30 years is kind of like a point of no return, as it were, in terms of of ocean food sources. Um, so a lot of the courses were sort of built around things that we predict are, are still going to be doing okay. So like seaweed, um, kelp, and uh, different kinds of microalgae, things that can um, function as invasive species. So like jellyfish is a really big one. Um, they're they're a majorly invasive species, and they seem to be thriving in the oceans for reasons that we may or may not totally understand. Um, sh- certain kinds of shellfish seem to be doing okay. Um but a lot of, you know, larger, more top of the food chain things like tuna and salmon and swordfish. And um, those are the things that are not doing too hot even now as a, as a product of overfishing and acidification and things like that. Um, so the idea was to avoid those and to sort of focus on sort of more unusual and, and less embraced food sources. Um, and yeah, so that was the idea and kind of trying to present those things in a, in a pleasurable way, even though there may be some more unfamiliar tastes and ingredients. What were the courses that you served? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> pop quiz. Let me try to remember. We opened with um, a cocktail that was like a, a mezcal pineapple cocktail, but um, I made ice cubes that had spirulina, which is a kind of microalgae in them. And the idea is that when you when you first start drinking the drink, it, you know, it looks pretty normal. But as the ice cubes melt, um, they sort of start to tint the drink this kind of like dark, murky kind of aquamarine blue-green color um, and by the time you get to the, the bottom of the drink that color has sort of intensified and the flavor was pretty subtle but but maybe a little bit more noticeable by the time you're done with the drink so that was sort of meant to be you know a, a consideration of the the gradual and maybe not immediately noticeable um, implications of climate change but um, the ways in which those things sort of build and, and sneak up on you even if you're not immediately aware of them. Um, and then we did an appetizer course that was a prawn cracker um, with uh, avocado uh, finger lime, which are these sort of, um, they look kind, of, kind of look like caviar. They're this citrus from, I think, Australia. Um, and I sort of meant to think about that. It's like, well, if caviar isn't available, how will we approach sushi courses? And this might be like an alternative flavor. It's obviously a completely different taste, but they sort of look and, and texturally feel sort of similar. Um, so finger lime, avocado, a little bit of shiso leaf. Um, I did uh, salt cured egg yolk grated on top and oh octopus um, was kind of the centerpiece of that because octopuses are also doing doing really well um, they have very short life cycles they, they kind of like breed hard and die young um, <laughs> and they, they seem to be doing well in the ocean we don't know why maybe they like warmer waters maybe I, I don't know it's it's hard to tell but that could definitely be like a future of, of sashimi would be octopus as an alternative to things like um, tuna or salmon um, the next course was a salad course. So it was, um, cabbage and a couple different kinds of seaweed. I think there was, um, gosh, I can't even remember now. There was a, a bunch of different kinds of seaweed, but that was sort of meant to say, like, look at alternatives for greens that are really healthy and, and seem to be really readily available. Um, and they are an excellent carbon sink. So they do a lot of really great things for the ocean. 
Um, and then that was topped with like a, um, a tahini kind of dressing, so like a sort of creamy, citrusy type of situation. And then the main course, um, which is kind of the mouthful to explain, uh, was a mussel course. So mussels in a kind of briny, dashi miso broth. Um, and the idea was that the bowl acted as uh, kind of like a mini sustainable muscle farm. So the idea um, for a lot of futuristic ideas about how we're going to do aquaculture um, has to do with um, raising a couple species in the same pool that are kind of mutually sustainable. So um, if you have mussels and shrimp coexisting in the same the same pool, then the idea is that the shrimp um, can filter out the muscle excrement, effectively, to put it politely. Um, and then if you get seaweed going on in the same pool, then that's going to act as kind of a, a carbon sink and a, a means of reoxygenating, reoxygenating the water. Um, so that's a really great way to sort of have three really valuable food crops in one. Um, so there was a little shrimp bubble of fermented shrimp paste that you could kind of drop into the um, into the broth and swish a little around to melt it. And then there was a, a, a couple different kinds of seaweed floating around in the, the broth as well. And then I served that with um, ocean bread, which is bread made with ocean water in the dough as a means of kind of making it more salty and, and briny and interesting flavored. And then that was topped with uh, uni butter, so to add a little bit of kind of salt and fat and a little bit of funk. And then there was a fruit course, which was a bunch of different kinds of fruit that I think we tend to think of as sort of seasonally ubiquitous and, and available all the time um, in grocery stores. So things like pineapple and grapes and mangoes, things that, you know, definitely have a lot of miles on their backs when we import them from all over the world, um, just as a way to sort of think about like, you know, where and when does your food come from and why are there always grapes in the grocery store and um why, why do we take those things for granted? Whereas I think a lot of people who cook more seriously would, you know, never dream of sort of trying to make like a tomato salad in the middle of winter, but are still going to, I don't know, be sourcing lots of grapes and, um, and even pie. I eat pineapple all year long, which is probably not the most sustainable food choice. But, um, so that course was, um, these sort of big slabs of fruit that diners were able to dip into little bowls of seawater. Um, and then the fruit was topped with like a little bit of a spicy chili situation, um, and then the dessert course, uh, God, was, um, we called it the five futures because as Alex, the author, and I were talking, I, I, I think we were sort of spinning our own wheels going like, there's so many different ways that this could go and there's so many different angles and how do we even talk about the future when we don't totally know? And so, you know, we were sort of writing out all these different things like, is it going to be sci-fi? Is it going to be the future? Is it going to be the Hunger Games? Is it going to be... Um, you know, a really hardcore farm to table. And so we decided like, okay, what if we could present all five of those options at the same time? And so we sort of presented a dessert plate with five different little bites on it. Um, and each one was meant to sort of represent a, a different way in which the future could go. Mm -hmm. And so one of those options for the dessert was this little jello cube, which was half blue, half pink. And it was kind of like the women, right, would eat the pink <laughs> side and the men would eat the blue side. Yeah. And so this kind of predicts this future in which we're eating solely for fuel or maybe supplements mm -hmm. or you know nutrition instead of just um, pleasure and do you think this is a viable future I don't think in our lifetimes or or really any time after that I mean I have I have no idea when or if you know if, if nuclear war happens and we we actually do destroy all hopes of an agricultural future then yeah maybe we will have to be kind of synthesizing all of our food in labs and um, and getting nutrition from maybe less orthodox ways but I think as a species, we've always been really good about finding and inventing pleasure for ourselves. And I think we'll continue to do so, um, particularly with, with what the food conversation looks like now. I think we're 
we're much too curious and too too pleasure driven to kind of you know turn into a Soylent Green situation anytime soon. You've been listening to Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio. Brooklyn-based food artist Jen Monroe and I are talking about the other ways we consume food today, and we'll be right back after the break. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk, Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. And we're back with Jen Monroe of Bad Taste. Hi. While the qualifier Instagram ability in determining whether or not we should eat at, let alone visit, a restaurant is a new one, the aesthetic experience of food is certainly not. In what ways, other than with our mouths, do you think we consume our food? Well, with our eyes is the is the good answer to that question, and that's that's also not a new phenomenon. I mean, people have been um, thinking about what food looks like for a really long time. I was finally gifted the Salvador Dali cookbook for Christmas this year after asking for it two years in a row. And um, yeah, thinking about the aesthetics of food is is not new, but now it's you know so much more easily distributable the image, and um, and so we we obviously take advantage of that. You showed me this essay by Roland Barthes, and he kind of predicted that we would perceive and engage with food in a kind of classist way. And do you think this is true, and do we see this today? I do. Um, and I think when he talks about classism, he's maybe not talking about it in as, as strictly ominous as a way as, as we do when we talk about classism. I think there's definitely a lightheartedness to it. Um, but he talks about, like, one of the examples that he cites in the essay that I love is he talks about coffee and what it means when someone takes a coffee break. Um, and I guess in, in France that coffee is, is marketed very heavily as a kind of a relaxing product, which mm-hmm. I don't, as an American, I don't really relate to, but, um, yeah, that, that commercials about coffee are always all about selling ideas of like, you gotta, re- like, you're so stressed out, you gotta relax, you gotta take a coffee break. And so that's kind of like sort of a quick signif. I mean, I, you know, I, I see people like, oh, I'm, I'm really busy and stressed out. I gotta take a cigarette break. And I think in a lot of ways that's kind of like a performative thing that maybe isn't actually mm-hmm. doing much of a function other than like making you visibly busy or important or like needing a timeout. And I think what he's talking about with coffee kind of means the same way. And I, I think that's, um, I think that is kind of, uh, it's a class distinction in that that's a way of people sort of readily identifying themselves as a certain kind of person. Um, but I don't think it necessarily has to apply to as strict of a sort of like a classist system as, as what we think about. Um, and he, he's, he, he applies the same model to things like the business lunch, right. Or, or even to like cliff bars or snack bars that like, if you're someone who like you're like at work and you're like working so hard, you like gotta eat a cliff bar that like <laughs> that is kind of meant to be a sort of showy way about like what kind of busy and important and energy intensive person you are. And I think yeah, I think that in itself is a kind of classism without necessarily saying like I'm very rich or I'm very powerful or I have excellent taste. It's just saying like I'm important and I need my my energy needs. And you know, similarly you have like computer programming type people who are 
um, you know, really hell bent on staying in front of their computer and working really hard for 12 hours, and they're going to be looking to something like Soylent to sort of signify that. And, and it, it does meet a caloric need. You know, if you're really busy, you truly don't have time to get up. It's it's going to be a godsend, but it also identifies you as a certain kind of person. Yeah. And I think that has, you know, to get back to your earlier question about Instagram ability, I think the same thing is very much happening with the Instagram food culture, you know, it started with like tacos and like lattes with like heart-shaped foam. And now the the trend that I'm seeing happening a lot is, um, I don't know if you have any like more new agey friends, but like adaptogens and oh, um, yeah. yeah, like reishi and, um, and ashwagandha and stuff like that. And it's funny because I have a lot of kind of more new agey inclined friends. And so I've been watching them do this for years and, and you know, have it not really be something that's recognized by any kind of mainstream branch of, of food culture at all. But I noticed a few days ago that the New York Times had published a recipe for Did you see that? Yeah, it yeah. was just like the latte with like $200 worth of adaptogens in the ingredients list. And um, <laughs> and it's funny because while reading that, you know, as someone who's seen that culture pan out for years, I, I felt a, a tug of interest all of a sudden. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, maybe I like should do this but I already like I already know that I don't want to drink that like I've already drank that latte a million times and I'm like this doesn't really taste very good and this isn't really what I want but like obviously it works for some people you know and power to them but yeah just feeling feeling the marketing of something that I had been aware of for a long time and feeling it marketed in a new way that suddenly made it look very chic and appealing to me and um and feeling that tug so I see stuff like that happening on Instagram all the time like matcha lattes is a new one and um yeah thinking about about kind of new class identifiers that people use food as um, on social media. Yeah, no, there's this, I don't know, he, he even equates food with triviality in the essay, and we get this similar feeling when we're mindlessly scrolling through our feeds, totally. right? Like, latte art just makes you feel good. Yeah. Uh, pretty green matcha lattes make you feel you happy. Like a nice manicure. Exactly. Yeah. And why do you, do you think this is why food is able to be such a transportive medium then? God, um... I guess that's kind of a dark question, right? Like if, if the pleasure in food lies in its sort of disposability, then like, who oh boy, that's, but, but at the same time, yeah, that is what's beautiful about cooking for someone is, you know, it, you make something really beautiful and sometimes really sculptural and maybe something that took days and was a real labor of love to make. And then it's, it's gone and you have to, you have to purely live in it and embrace it in a really fleeting sensory way. That might be a little bit of a high and mighty description of like what flicking through an Instagram feed is like, but, but at the same time, yeah, I think, I think, Triviality, disposability, and, and ephemerality are, are all really meaningful things in the way we experience things. So with the two hundred dollar latte, right? And um, I didn't actually do the math. I don't know, but I was I like it was definitely an expensive morning drink. Mm-hmm. And with I don't know if you see the ads for like the Daily Harvest smoothies. Mm-hmm. There's like acai bowls, and so how has food come to act as these lifestyle signifiers? Um. I mean, I think in the same way that anything else, I think in the same way that, that, that fancy clothing or like, you know, for people who are more interior designy, having like, you know, your $4,000 modernist couch, I think it's the same thing. I think it's, it's commodity. Um, I think it's a kind of commodity fetishism. And I think because in theory, food is maybe a little bit less expensive than a $4,000 couch or like a $500 Missoni sweater or whatever, I think it's maybe a little bit easier for people to identify themselves with it. And I think the hope is that, you know, kind of what you were talking about is the the democratization of taste. I think the hope is that a lot of those kind of classist implications sort of start to undo themselves because it is possible to be, you know, a a dumpster diving freegan who is really into like fermenting their own kombucha and like making a million different kinds of pickles and like having homebrew going in their basement and to be a really committed foodie without 
necessarily spending $400 on your morning latte, you know? And, um, and I think that is a really cool and, and hopeful thing. I think there's a lot of work left to be done in, in the way that this, this trend continues to unfold. Um, but I think it is exciting that, I mean, I, you know, I, I consider myself someone who thinks seriously about food a lot of the time and I almost never go out to fancy restaurants because I don't have the money and that's, that's just the reality of it. But I don't think that has prevented me from, from cooking and exploring in, in, in serious ways that, that mean something to me and, um, say something to me about my interests. So I, I think it, in a lot of ways it is kind of exciting to be alive because gourmet culture isn't, you know, doesn't exist along those really rigid class lines that it might have 30 or 40 years ago. And what are you working on now? Um, what I'm working on this week is um, a food installation for a fashion week show. I don't know if I'm allowed to say the designer's name because I think she might want it to be a surprise, but it's going to be, um, it's a, a monochromatic, I guess I shouldn't even say what color it is, but it's a monochromatic <laughs> food installation. Um, and it's going to be at a restaurant for a fashion week presentation this Thursday. Um, so that's kind of what I've got on the brain. And, and that's that's kind of interesting for me because it's... Um, not necessarily made with taste in mind so much as visuals and so that's it's not meant to be eaten as it were um and so that's that's kind of an interesting thing for me to come at it backwards whereas normally I come at it with with taste trying to be the first and most important thing Mm -hmm. and then um the kind of long-term project that I've got my sights set on for now um is that I want to do a a very large um sit down kind of immersive dinner about bees and colony collapse disorder and I'm I'm speaking this out loud right now in the hopes that by by shouting my dreams out to the world that it'll make them more able to come true because it it feels like a a pretty expensive endeavor that I haven't quite figured out how to fund yet you have Venmo yeah everyone y'all um Venmo me yeah (laughs) I know but it's definitely like I need to just grow up and be a big girl and apply for some grants in a way that I feel daunted by but um so yeah I I do want to do some kind of large-scale more sculptural um piece about bees and my hope is that I can get some some real science people involved um in a in a meaningful way and um and make it kind of a a special thing I've been talking with Brooklyn-based food artist John Monroe on how eating looks today I'm Coralie and thanks for listening to Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio thank you so much for having me Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.